So Adam, I'm going to tell you uh, words you don't want to hear. Namely, <laughs> this could be anything, like literally anything. In the wheel. He's like, there are so many words I don't want to hear you say. That wheel is so big. I so Where is this going to land? How, how many of the words are LLM? Like? No, 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 no. Okay, thank you. Quiet. One of the words are LLM. But I have been thinking about our episode from last week. I know you're just like, no, Brian, we did the episode last week. No, no. we never talk about it again. That's you, why you and nobody else. Yes. Right. Okay. Right. So, and uh, in, in the spirit of more, uh, answering questions that no one asked. Um, <laughs> so no, I was going to I, I, it actually is, this, this is actually on topic because I was thinking like, as I was, I was re-listening to it um, as I wanted to do. Uh, and I think, you know, I didn't really get to the crux of what I kind of find deeply annoying about Nate Silver's list of, you know, the top, whatever, top t- 10 technologies from 1900 or from 2000 and comparing them. With, the, here's my, my, like the, the fundamental issue is it's reductive. That's the problem huh. is that it's reductive. And I actually like things that take seem that where you have seeming simplicity and you actually, there's, there's a world of complexity underneath it. Like that to me is actually a lot more interesting. And he's, you know, I'm glad you had the week to think about that. Yeah. You know, like, look, this is why it's, I, we're always better off. This is why like the talk that I prepare when I get, get, get trolled is actually like listenable versus like the podcast, which may not always be um, because it's a little too hot, but no, but, but I think this is the issue. Like the, the issue is it's, it's too reductive. And I think that it is too easy to take things for granted because we, because technologists spend a lot of time trying to make technology integrate into the, the into society bluntly in terms of like how we use it. And we don't want these things to be a giant pain in the ass. You shouldn't have to know how PCB works in order to be able to use one. And, or, and I think like that is like the fundamental issue. And as you know, I kind of think about my own interests and I think that uh, the interests of a lot of folks that are, are, uh, are friends of oxide. Um, it is the the things that are interesting are where you you take something that like wow that how hard can that be, and you take it apart and you realize like wow this is actually extraordinarily complicated and you get great reverence for like wow I I'll never think of a network switch the same way again because wow it is so deeply complicated I will never take boot for granted again I will never uh, I, I will never take all of these these kind of unseen aspects of the system that are in this category of how complicated can it be it's like well glad you asked because it's super complicated. And I think like that's the thing when you just take that complexity, and and in Silver's case, he like doesn't know that it exists, so it's very easy for him to will it away because he doesn't, you know, not not to sound, you know, well, I guess this is just going to sound terrible, but I this is the the challenge of when you have someone who doesn't is not actually a technologist, kind of weighing in on these things. It's like you can do that, but you have to have great reverence for this hidden complexity, and you you have to fight the urge to be reductive. Um. So that brings with us that, with to that, our simple storage service. To our simple storage service. No, I, I, actually, that's a great example, right? Because that is, I totally. mean, that's actually, that's, a, I, that's very on point. I mean, how many people know that S3 is actually the simple storage service? And it ain't simple. I mean, <laughs> it's anything but. And storage is kind of the ne plus ultra of how hard can it be? And how hard can it be? Like taking bits and you're putting them over there. I I can't play bits. Just moving things. Just moving things. Take the bits and store the bits. 
But when I ask for the same bits back, give me the same bits. Like, really? Is that complicated? And Alan, I think it's, it's complicated is the answer. Yeah. Yeah, it's complicated. So we've got, um, so we're going to dive into storage. And we, and I, I think we have been, Adam, you and I have been remiss to, to we, this is a, a dimension of oxide that we have really, <laughs> I know people rightfully think, you know, you people are such oversharers. Is like there anything that happens <laughs> to oxide that you don't just prattle on about in 15 different podcast episodes? And the answer is like, yeah, there are still a bunch of things that we haven't really talked about. <laughs> Stay tuned. Stay tuned. We will. Um, and storage is a big one because stor yeah. the storage is really, really important um, in the rack. And we haven't really talked about storage at all. We kind of hit on it and, and it's open source. So we've had people out there that have been like, hey, when are you guys going to talk about storage? This seems really interesting. So um, in the spirit of that, we got a bunch of folks here have been working on Crucible. Um, but Adam, I wonder if, if you and Josh might kick it off with kind of the origin of this, because we were, uh, when we started the company, we knew that we were going to have what one might call hyper-converged infrastructure. Hyper-converged infrastructure, is that, how, how much does that term bother you, Adam? Uh, I think tremendously. Um, I, I would be on the I, list of words you didn't want to hear from Brian. That, that, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was that. If I was writing a little note here and I turn it over and you finally got there, but I think yeah. because it sounds so kind of highfalutin, and yeah. it is, and and yet also I don't know what it means. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> it's not it's not well understood uh, generally, and um, it, it it really sounds magical. I mean, not just converged, but hyper converged. Yeah, you know, the, the no, convergence. Critically, that's because we already had something that people were calling converged, right? Before, <laughs> there we before go. that, so yeah, you know, and I also don't know what that means. So, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, Adam, that dimension hadn't even occurred to me. That there's like a converged is kind of like a boolean property, and it's like, no, this is not just true; it's hyper true. It's like <laughs> you can't be hyper pregnant, right? Hyper on. It's like, isn't it just right? No, it is. Yeah. It, it's a goofy term. Um, it's a good but, thing, to, and, and people are using it to mean you know, sort of, you get storage and memory and uh, CPU all sort of in blocks together. Is that is that roughly? No, isn't it? isn't it meant to be? So <laughs> I go. vaguely remember EMC go. selling us a ridiculously expensive storage card that was both fiber channel and Ethernet, and calling it hyperconverged in like oh, no, no, 2005. No no no. no, 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 that is not. No, no, that is not. Well, this is an important distinction. That is merely converged. Ah, I that see. Is, that is actually well. Not I can see where my confusion would have emerged from. <laughs> that is converged. That is that the converged was a kind of a uh, storageism for converging these different storage protocols. And yeah. hyperconverged is the I, I, I've always understood it to your understanding as well, where you've got compute and data at some level co-resident on the same infrastructure at some level. Yeah. And, and and I mean, it's so specific in some people's minds that they feel like a detractive property of hyperconverged is that it all comes in some sort of fixed ratio. And I don't know why why the definition in their minds has become so specific, but um, it's it's even a term that I've shied away from when talking about oxide at all, just because it comes with so much hair on it. And it was an abbreviation. It's HCI. Not, which is not human computer interface, which is what I always thought it was, but uh, hyperconverged infrastructure. Yes, I'm sorry. I hate to be doing this, um, but it's true. Well, host controller, host controller interface in the USB spec. I mean, uh, distant third. Josh okay. was already mad when he thought we were talking about fiber channel. Now imagine no, how no, exactly. I look fiber channel. It's 
I mean, other than <laughs> you know, I've other, other, other than how ridiculously expensive a proprietary it is, like Mrs. Lincoln, I'm sure it's fine. Otherwise. <laughs> I actually have complicated feelings on Fiber Channel because the, you know, we did a, this, you know, Adam United worked on the storage appliance and yeah. uh, one of the protocols that we ended up offering was Fiber Channel. So I spent a bunch of time with FC and I'm like, you know, I, I, I kind of like, like it in a strange way. It feels like, it, you, you know, Josh, you might actually like Fiber Channel. Have you gone, <laughs> you, do you know why? It's got that, that kind of that, 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 that antiquarian sense to it. It's kind of, it's, uh, it's fine. Kind of we steampunk. Had, we have like, a lot of it. It's steampunk. At, it is. Definitely steampunk, uh, but also I didn't want to suffer at its hands. That's uh, that's also we, we were like I mean right. I I do believe in my heart of hearts that EMC could have used any protocol to create the nightmare cathedral that they sold us. So like <laughs> challenge accepted. That's right. Yeah, like you know, yeah. All right. So to get to in terms of oxide, so we do, so we, when we yeah. start out four years ago, we know we're going to have storage as part. We we I mean early early on. This is where we're, you know, students of all of the other efforts in this domain. And one of the dimensions of failure was uh, relying on third-party storage. So building compute, that would be then entirely dependent on third-party storage because that's just a one th that is a never-ending quest to deliver a reliable system across two different vendors effectively. Um, and you just can't own your own fate. Because Adam, I don't know if we yeah. even seriously we didn't seriously contemplate it. I don't think we seriously. I, I don't. It. I don't think so. But in in part because it, it it's not just sort of uh, or or maybe some of this experience came from Delphix where where I worked for a bunch of years. We were um, we dealt with lots of what what we called externalities. So we built this software virtual appliance that plugged into any storage you happen to find. And geez, like man, we found like every vendor storage problem got bubbled up to us. Okay, we so were Adam, always ask, guilty until proven innocent. I, I got to ask you, at that time, when, when you kind of first come in, because you, know, you and I have developed our own storage product, and we've mm -hmm. absolutely suffered with all yeah. of the ways that you suffer when you develop a storage product. Then you go to Delphix, we're like, hey, good news, we're not developing a storage product. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, God, <laughs> yeah I want to get out of hardware. Like, please just get, get me away from this God. baloney. Right. Right, and now you realize, like, no, wait a minute, I haven't gotten away from the problems. I've, I've merely exported them to hostile <laughs> That's actors. Right. That's right. That's right. It's just everybody else's problem has become our problem. And then, you know, for example, we saw some ZFS checksum errors when people were doing an EMC storage array upgrade. They, <laughs> Impossible. Like, Impossible. All of I our Windows machines stayed up. Only you were complaining. It's like, well, oh yeah, we're the only ones who had checksums. Jeepers. So, well, could you have you considered turning those off? Because I feel like <laughs> that's, then, then that would have helped. Then you'd be fine. I mean, yeah. that must have been wild, though, to see checksums on some a piece of storage that people paid a lot of money for. That must have been like, <laughs> yeah, it was on this one. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and then the fact that, you know, as you might imagine, the but the vendor and the customer were unwilling to accept any evidence to the contrary. Yeah, definitely. Like, let me give you my evidence to the contrary. I paid way too much money for the <laughs> right. checksum errors, pal. So why don't you go reconsider yeah. whether I saw some, some checksum errors? There is yeah. a very, like a big, like, uh, what's the thing where you fall in love with your captors? Like Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. Stockholm syndrome. Right. So it's like yeah. combination, combination Stockholm syndrome and, uh, like good money after bad fallacy yeah. sort of. Yeah. 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 And then, um, you know, yeah. All, all the other ways that people are, are secured into their infrastructure. Sorry. So you, it, 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 
you'd had that experience of having the now you're just debugging every vendor's problem effectively. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and, so and, I don't, and as you yeah. say, I don't think we really thought that, that you know, oh, maybe we'd plug into somebody else's storage or something. I think as we envisioned this thing as you know, private cloud, uh, one throat to choke kind of kind of product, um, it wasn't. Nobody thought it would make sense for us to integrate with other people's storage products or you know, drive APIs at other people's storage. It just made no sense. So it, we knew yes. that we had to have storage in the box. And then there were a bunch of other constraints. Um, one of the most, like, I mean, some very hard constraints were we needed it to be reliable. And I think having built some storage products, <laughs> we had a, a good reverence for what it took to be to make reliable storage. You know, we started at Sun. We started working on ZFS I think in earnest, Brian, in like 2001. Yes, that's right. Um, and then we shipped it, you know, in I think 2005 as part of like the first update to Solaris 10. Right. And then we shipped it, uh, you know, again, arguably as part of the ZFS storage appliance in 2008. Yep. I think those felt like starting lines, but I think that was the time in my career I realized that, or pardon me, those felt like finish lines. That was the time in my career that I realized those were actually starting lines because actually starting as lines. we rolled, as you know, we had shipped this thing. It was in customers' hands. This was in 2006 when we started the Fishworks group building that appliance. And yet we were tripping over all this kind of stuff just in development. Then when we shipped the thing, we found our customers very helpfully helped us find all these other kinds of problems. So, which is not to say that ZFS is unreliable or less reliable. I mean, we saw, I saw this later on in, in these even, you know, longer tenured products, but it's hard to build reliable storage. It's very um, hard to build reliable storage because it's not merely about getting the, the, the block back that you stored, although it is certainly that. Um, right. And that is very much a constraint. It's about getting it back in a timely manner. Hmm. Because I think one of the, I mean, the problems that we had with ZFS actually, I mean, in a real tribute to, to Jeff and Matt and, and the original ZFS team is the the ZFS, we did not really, we did not see data corruption. We saw some very long data vacations. And <laughs> yes. preventing data vacations is really, really, really hard. Um, preventing data loss is obviously a constraint. So, and, it, and you just realize like how much damage a single bad disk can do to a broader system in terms of, of a latency, not, not in terms of, of reliability. Um, so yeah. it, it's, it's really hard. And then the, the, the thing that I felt like I, Josh, you and I learned very viscerally together at, um, at Joyin, where we use the in production. And we did not, when I, there's a little bit of an asterisk on data corruption in ZFS. ZFS did not ever induce data corruption, but we did actually have a very, very, very bad OS bug that, um, we uh, effectively pushed the system into a new dimension and hit some old behavior, hit an old bug, and it would cause rampant data corruption in the system. And if you cause rampant data corruption in the system, like you can actually it corrupt metadata on its way out that's already been checked. Critically, in, in the, the memory, like in the, the, RAM, yes. the RAM of the system. Yeah. And where, where we happened to be storing some data that was on its way to the disk, for instance. And that was very bad. And that was not very yeah. fun to debug. Um, and so you really don't want to have like, so basically World War II stressful, rampant data corruption <laughs> bad is what I'm trying to. You know, this, right. These are your um, life lessons. The, the, these are so, my life lessons. So when we, when we um, you know, Josh and I started kicking around ideas for what storage would look like at Oxide, doing as little as possible was an important constraint. I think at the time, 
you know, I, I joined um, having done some research around ZNS. You know, this is uh, what has now yeah, become right. flexible flexible data placement. But ZNS uh, zoned uh, namespaces on SSDs, um, and started thinking about like, what are all the totally crazy things that we could go do from a clean sheet of paper? You know, at that point, we had almost twenty years of experience from ZFS and great system, but but really fundamentally a system that was built for spinning media. Like it was, it, it had a very different design basis than uh, than what we have now, than the state of the state of the world now. And I'd spent a lot of times with Matt Aaron's batting around ideas for what a next generation looked like. So briefly, fell in love with what a next generation could look like with all the whizziest new SSD technologies. But then with time constraints and knowing how long it takes to make one of these things, make make a storage service actually reliable and perform well and not go on long vacations, we started to figure out what the simplest form we could take. Right. And we, I think also people might be a bit surprised, as I guess they were with RFD26 and our Helios discussion a couple weeks ago, that ZFS was not necessarily a foregone conclusion. It was something that we all had a lot of experience with, but we also wanted to make sure we were really surveying things. So yeah. um, the RFD60, which we just put put out there today, made public, um, folks can go look at some of the things that that you looked at, um, but we did. I mean, we you know very seriously considered things like Ceph. Um, and, yeah. And uh, um, Adam, I remember you and I had some discussions with people who had deployed Ceph. Yeah. Um, and they were revealing. I mean, because I mean, it, 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 again, not to I, it, not to fall into the kind of what I'm convincing, what I'm accusing Nate Silver of. I don't want to be too productive <laughs> here, but I think that it was very clear that Ceph. Needed. I mean, it, the most charitable thing you could say about Ceph is that it very much requires operators. Yeah, it needs yeah. a staff. That's the yes. of, pe of people who are not just like using it, but 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 actively caring for it and feeding it and watering it, yeah, like every day, checking to make yeah. sure that the print queues are not clogged up or whatever it is. You know, like you need people doing the busy work basically to to keep it going. And it sounds like Brian, we had the same recollection of that of like that conversation, which where uh, with some operators of Ceph, who, who were very uh, you give a lot of praise to Ceph. Yes, but very the kiss of death for me, totally. Yeah. The kiss of death was them saying, "But you, you know that Ceph is operated, not shipped." And not I've, shipped. I've since found I've since found some people who kind of have pushed back on that notion, but I found at the time that very compelling. That this is a system that requires care and feeding and it's great and uh we needed something that was going to be uh autonomous and that's been one yes. of our core load stars right for the whole for everything that we've designed in the product i feel like it's like how can we make this uh truly automatic so that it yes. does not require a person to go log into a unix shell and like kill a stuck process or delete some files or move some logs around or whatever. Like it should just work. Uh, you know. And I think, you know, Ceph has been on an interesting journey and they did a, an entire rewrite, um, which actually paradoxically um, kind of drained confidence I might have in it just because they had been kind of so confidently asserting their previous data store that they were then like, actually ignore what we said about the previous data store. Now <laughs> we've got one that works. It's like, okay. This is the um, blue, the, the thing we did, the, we read the paper on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, blue, um, blue store, blue store. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. and I mean, like, I think it's great that Seth is, you know, living its best life and I, perfect for it. But it was, it just was not going to be a fit for us. So, and then I think we 
and you kind of gone through some other things and really had decided like, look, what we need to go do is build something that is as simple as possible, as robustly as possible, um, and, and that can deliver what we're trying to deliver, which is reliable, elastic storage to the folks that are provisioning VMs on the rack. Um, so it, do you want to kind of... I know you and Josh were beginning the noodle on and getting like specific about like what would is this architecture going to look like? Because I think it's like this was in 2020, uh, the yeah. pandemic hit by actually, Adam, did you in the RFD, we refer to an actual meeting that we have? We record all meetings. So I'm <laughs> is this the one with, with uh, the, the, the disc vendor? Uh, no. Okay. no, 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 no. Oh, okay. This is one where we are effectively, it's a, it's a determination for 60 where we're. Okay. And I'm figuring out what our approach is, and oh my god, the COVID haircuts! <laughs> it is, that would have been in June, right? Yeah, it's in June yeah. of 2020, and it's like kind of like it's like in that era when we're all getting haircuts at home, and no one had had yet gotten really good at it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I and, have I have notes from that meeting, and they finish with the words "good meeting" with an exclamation mark. <laughs> it was a good meeting. Just to tie that off. <laughs> just it was a good meeting. It was a good meeting. Actually, you know what, Josh? You've got nothing. Maybe you were growing your hair out. I, I have to say, your hair looks great in that meeting. Adam, see me after class. Um, <laughs> Fair. He, um, but no, this was us. You can see me and everyone else after class. I got the, very much the same. My, my my bangs were missing, so we had we uh, we we changed it up after that haircut. Um, but so, what were some of the kind of the, the approaches that you were considering when we were yeah. originally? Kind so of I think. I think we ended up saying you know, ZFS is going to be part of this, and as much as possible, like we want to lean on the things that ZFS is good at. And I think the, as I recall, the 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 two kind of major architectural things that we considered were: sure, do we have ZFS, and then plug in some sort of distributed storage layer underneath this, where you know a particular ZFS data set could could talk to multiple you know backing stores virtual volumes that were remote and delphix at the time was also doing some work along these lines so it felt like not outrageous and then the other approach that we that we considered was um what josh had deemed uh, a mux and i think this is something josh that you had been thinking about at joyant for a while yes that is true i was <laughs> Do you remember Brian, sure. to, towards the towards the end we we're like we could do EBS like and you're like no go back to bed this, this, <laughs> no one no one that we would give it to within the organization which we find ourselves would enjoy that so we and, and just to be clear we did not all we had at at joint at was local storage Nampa, yeah which was right. a um, a, a hyper-converged S3, if you will, a, a storage service that you could Jesus. run a computer on. Um, and so that was, and then we had um, effectively local, of, of, I hate the term ephemeral because it wasn't ephemeral at all, but we had local storage that was local to an instance that obviously performed very well, but we did not have an EBS in between. Um, right. And yeah. we knew that, that was going to be a huge undertaking. And Josh, and so Josh, I know you've been thinking about it and that, that kind of that first approach um, that you're describing where you have ZFS on a, so you've got a, a local compute instance that is talking to a Z pool. That Z pool is then going out over the network underneath it effectively. Um, that's what we call, I think, the Southern Volume Manager approach. In the, in the that's RFD. right. That's right. You're right. As uh, opposed to what, what then became the Northern MUX, where 
we had ZFS on those distributed nodes, kind of managing each of the SSDs, carving those up into what we would later call extents, um, but uh, you know within the data sets. But ha having this new layer that was running close to the to the VM that was then multiplexing the I/O across these uh, these downstairs components, so or or these southern components, and that later became upstairs and downstairs for. Um, for north and south, right, and the you know as we're kind of consider these are like a major fork in the road. I mean, these are totally different architectures, yeah. really. Um, and you know, one of the things that I'm a big believer is like, what can you go prototype or implement to get some to inform a decision? And Josh, I think it was about at this time you're like, I need to need to go simulate some of this stuff. Yeah, in um, in June, like, Adam Adam went to start looking at uh, like just a nominal prototype of the the thing with the uh, like disks underneath ZFS. I think we started out with iSCSI possibly in AWS. That's right. You did yep. some tinkering. I have yep. <laughs> found a note here where like a bunch of your tinkering ended with like a one line comment that was like garbage with a period. <laughs> <laughs> which, that sounds about right. Which I yeah, think I th that reflects what I remember the, the, the feelings of the tone being. Yeah. I, I, th I do think I went in with, with more optimism that, that this was going to sort of work out. Right. But um, but it it was. I mean, as I said, like it, ZFS wasn't on its you know initially even designed for SSDs. So it certainly wasn't designed for different volumes that were remote and might be available and might not and yeah. so forth. So yeah, I think I think I garbage think I, was a pretty terse and accurate summary. I think my skepticism originally with the idea came from like the partition, like network storage, like ice because you end up with partitions right it's just not something yeah. you really get with like a local scuzzy disk it's either like working or it's electrically connected and it's not working and you can decide to like retire it well know, and like this is a real danger at you know on the one hand there's a power of the abstraction where it's like oh you think you're talking to a local disk oh surprise you're going over the network but on the other hand it's like, right. actually you're introducing a whole bunch of new failure modes there that you didn't actually have and yeah, right um, things can go out to lunch for two minutes and that's extremely bad like you know uh and this you know things of problems that you know nfs addressed one way or the other for better and for ill but what we we're really not looking for something that has nfs semantics or really you do need something right. that's really got block semantics not file semantics because what you're trying to support is a guest vm that's going to do you know, its interface is the machine interface effectively. So it really does need a, a block layer. Right. And so um, along, alongside that, I worked on just a simulator for how I envisaged the, like, storage format and the protocol would work for the other approach where we would, we would have uh, simpler non-redundant ZFS pools down on every, like every SSD in the rack has its own file system, own ZFS pool and file system basically. And there's no mirroring or RAID or anything. And then we would do essentially replication from, from, from up the top. Uh, you know, we would write blocks of data to some number of replicas, which I think around then we decided would be three replicas. Yeah, th that's an important point too, because we decided we weren't going to do anything, any crazy erasure coding or RAID right. or anything like that. We decided we were going to really keep it simple. Right. And and uh, not just mirror it once, but mirror it. So have three redundant copies of every block that that uh, customers store within the rack. 
Um, because we weren't trying to make the world's most efficient storage, the world's fastest storage, the world's anything most. It was meant to just be a good everyday driver. Right. right. And in particular, it was meant to be like reliable above all else. It had to be absolutely reliable. Yeah. Like that had to be a constraint. Well, and a um, big part of big part of three replicas was like if you recall really early, like one of the first things we decided was that if we if we did network storage and we did live migration, then software update could basically be like something that people don't notice because you could right. go and yeah. upda- update and reboot each computer in sequence. And if you're if you only needed two of three replicas to be online and responsive to to take writes basically without a durability loss, then like three replicas was the way to go. So, well, and this is actually an important point too, because especially people who have followed us from company to company be like, wait a minute, didn't you guys like write a blog entry explaining why network storage is a problem? And it's like, yes, well, it is. It is a problem. We spent four years like screwing around trying to make it work and it's going well, but like, geez, a lot of work. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot of work, but a part of the reason we viewed it as a constraint on what we were delivering is exactly what you said, Josh, is that like we knew we we needed to do one of the pain points that we had had is the the absence of live migration. And when you don't have live migration, you don't want to reboot a compute node because you can't migrate it. And you are therefore like that node, you want that node to sit. And there are that just has a lot of perverse incentives and it creates a lot of problems. So we didn't want to have any of those problems. We wanted we wanted to have live migration built into the product as a constraint on the on what we were doing. And that meant that you have to have network storage um, as a first class operation. And you can do other things too, but we we really viewed that as a constraint. Uh, and so, Josh, your simulator begins to yield some results in terms of indicating, like, okay, maybe, like, this this path of the northern mox is feeling viable. Um, yeah, I, I had made myself comfortable that that, uh, like, we could build a crash safe representation of a disk with a reasonable performance, like, target in mind. Uh, without it being like incredibly complicated and we'd need to build a custom file system and a bunch of other stuff like the um i think the and the simulator stuff i did for like two months was a big part of that right like like the discovering like what happens if you allow an overlapping write to the same disk address right to to occur to be issued like concurrently with it like you know, like you're writing to LBA5, and then before that finishes, you write to LBA5 again. Uh, you know, and there's just like, there's a, it's all about ordering constraints, really, right? Like this operation and this operation, like this one has to happen after that one because it's replicated. You're doing that operation on three copies. And so that happens after relationship has to be the same on all three. Right, and so then there's just like an issue of like dependency ordering, threading through the protocol, and but you don't want to make everything totally ordered because then you can't do anything in parallel. So, like safely splitting up what things can occur concurrently. How do we make sure that each replica ends up transitioning through the same series of visible states, even if they end up doing things in parallel, and then making it crash safe. So if you, you know, get interrupted between 
or during any set of operations. And indeed, if you get interrupted during a different point on any replica, that you can still come back up and figure out what it is that you've promised to give back to the guest. And discs have a pretty specific set of promises that they make around um, right-back caching and flushes and synchronization and what's considered durable and not durable with respect to asynchronous rights and so on. Right. So the, the simulator was about trying to square those promises that we had to make against how we might implement that on the back end with a protocol. Because you're essentially creating a dist- distributed system with yes. not many nodes, right? But like, like one of the simplifying assumptions I think that, that we've held the whole time is that there is actually only one client. So there is no need for yes. Yes, consensus important. or coordination on a, on a block by block or request by request basis. And Josh, when when did the nomenclature, and I think Matt pointed this out in the chat, that the nomenclature at some point shifts from north to south, we shift from upstairs and downstairs, um, which I always have, I mean, I, I just get the, the, the image of a an English manor in which madcap adventures happen downstairs. I mean, that, that, was your that is, <laughs> that's definitely where it came from. I mean, the I swapped one uh one historically toxic, politically charged set of words for another, but on but a different news, continent. News, we're so. not going to have a civil war. Um, in, yeah. Instead, we're going to have a class base. It, right. It's merely about class. It's merely about class. No, no. Well, it's, it's great. Yeah. Uh, good stuff. Uh, and then somewhere, so this is all kind of through 2020. And then in early, but it's like, it's clear that, okay, we've sketched out what we need to go do. But right. And Josh, remember both you and Adam being like, by the way, I mean, we already have way too much to do, but like we... So yeah. We need to add some people to go do this, pal. Like we cannot do. We there. You know, we have joked that inside of Oxide, we've got nine different startups, and this was definitely one of the startups, and it was uh, yes. rather understaffed. I have a date here: twenty twenty February fourth, twenty twenty. So before the pandemic, we were in an all hands, and Adam says the long pole will be storage. Write it down. <laughs> like, and you did, and you and wrote I it did. Down. I have it here. <laughs> Because <laughs> accurate, I feel in hindsight. Uh, but we, yes. we we didn't start on Crucible until February seventeenth, I think, twenty twenty one. Well, and and which is a good segue to Alan. So, Alan, you joined us, I think, in April of twenty twenty one. Is that what it is? May. May. What is that? May. May. Yeah. And so, Alan, you're coming. So, describe your background a little bit and kind of how you're coming into Oxide in early twenty twenty one. Uh, well, I let's see. I had had been at Sun for a while, and I went to a storage startup through Pardata. And I came back Sun, and then went to another storage startup, DSSD. Um, and I was had left there and and gone somewhere I wasn't really happy with, and I wanted to wanted to land somewhere working on big systems problems. And I was keeping an eye on Oxide, and finally I was like, I I really want to work there. I, I want to see if I can get a job there. Um, but I'm sure that, I mean, there's so many storage guys there. There's no way they need any more storage. <laughs> I'm sure that work is like, they did that in the first 15 minutes. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Put exactly. It in the back burner. Um, Little did you know. Yeah. So then I, I show up and there wasn't much storage done yet. But <laughs> there was lots of good ideas. And so Adam and, and Josh sat me down and said, okay, here's, here's what we were thinking. Here's the repository in which we've been phoning it in. Would you like to do the typing? <laughs> <laughs> so that was sort of the, the beginning and and yeah we we got to work and, and started writing code and 
Yes. And so describe that kind of journey. So you are, you'd done, you had kind of come in with a background of, you've done a bunch of storage, you've been um, at, at DSSD, at Sun, uh, but I've also been doing some rust at a, at, at a startup, if I recall correctly. A little uh, bit. Yeah. Not, not a ton. Um, so you're coming into a, um, you know, some stuff that you, you, you've got a lot of experience in and, and understanding, um, getting ramped up on rust as well. Um, and so what were kind of the first things you started experimenting with? I think it was, it was implementing the, the lowest part of what, what crucible is talking, talking to the files, you know, that are the extents where we actually put the data on and taking sort of Josh's and Adam's ideas and, and putting them into actually writing bits on disk. And what up to remember some of the early milestones when we were, I mean, there was so much work to be done, but when we, and I think, you know, I, I, I pretty early on in there also, you're like, Hey, by the way, we, we definitely need to add, uh, I, I cannot do this by myself. I'm going to need additional folks. Yeah. Um, but what, what were some of the, I mean, when did we come up with the name Crucible, actually? When was that? I thought, I thought, John- according, according to my, according to my notes, the day that I opened the repository and started typing the first, like, 500 lines was when I decided to call it Crucible. Yeah, all right. It crucible like, that all up. happened in the space of about 30 minutes, so. All right. So we, so it was Crucible when you, when you got here. Oh, I got I here, yeah. I didn't realize that, okay. Um, so, um, what, um, yeah, we, we, as you're, so you're proceeding with some of the, the kind of the earliest, lowest layers. And I mean, you obviously are looking at kind of the thinking that had been done on this and kind of, is, is your thought these people are off the rocker or this? I, I was a little, little worried there were a bit too many layers, but, um, I don't know. I was just so excited to be here and to start working on it and, and being able to use Rust full time. I mean, we talked a little bit about how we'd like Rust. And I think that language enabled us to go so much faster than it would have been if we would have done it in C. Yeah, that's really interesting, yeah. Like, no way would we have gotten as far as we did, as quick as we did with with any, certainly with C, but. And then, because I remember early on, you being like, we definitely need more folks here. And James, you joined us like just a couple months later in 2021, right? In July. Yeah, it was July, yeah. Um, and I, I definitely, uh, remember in the, the conversations you were having at Oxide, you, you made two deadly mistakes. You indicated to Alan that you're interested in storage. Um, and then as I recall, you laughed at Alan's jokes, which is always as the second, I mean, the, the, Alan was, was smitten the second you, uh, the, the second his jokes were landing. Um, it was definitely, it was, it was, a, it was made meant to be. I remember the hiring huddle when we were talking about James. I was like, I, I want James. I want James in storage. So oh, it it was that direct. I then he also added like also he laughed at my jokes. But the uh, I think that James. Yeah, it was after I said <laughs> right. Well, uh, he's from the Commonwealth, so I can't argue with that. Exactly, you're you're fine with anyone who's from a, a constitutional monarchy. Hire them, right? Um, and so James, you're coming aboard, and I'm not. You had you had your your fingers in a lot of parts of the system but but very very much involved in crucible um with, what were some of the, the kind of your early memories of getting going with crucible it's funny that alan started out uh at the lowest level uh in terms of rust you know talking directly to the bits on uh i guess the downstairs at that point 
I remember one of the first things I did is I, I came up to the top and I said, okay, I'd like to put a uh, NBD crate in front of this. I want to treat this as a actual like disc. I remember the uh, the demo that resulted from it. I said, I was very nervous and I think I said, it's a disc like a hundred times in a row. Um, but I, I wanted to make that you know, part of my development workflow. So starting with like, can I interact with this, you know, slash dev slash NBD zero, uh, for example. So getting it up and running like that was one of my, uh, one of my earliest memories uh, in that case. Well, and so you mentioned the demos. I remember the, those, the, those early demos of where you're actually getting this thing to do like, re, you're actually using it for like real stuff. And you were, uh, and there, there, nothing beats seeing a demo where, where people are actually, you know, like the stuff I've actually, we've been developing, I'm now actually putting to real use, um, was just outstanding. And I learned that you're, because uh, James has got a, um, Oxide has several data centers, one of which in Canada, we're all named after pet food names, I believe, are all your, we, we do believe in, in pets, not cattle for some, some machines. Um, good old Fancy Feast, I feel, has served very honorably in the as the uh, as my comedy partner greg likes to say i'm one of the hyperscalers uh, and i will take no further questions at this time uh, <laughs> I, let me see if i could i have a, a picture that i actually took of this so i could drop it in the chat oh um, yeah this is great because you're solving another problem for adam which is like it's not this it's going to be my, my northern mux diagram <laughs> please don't use this as the uh the background of the like the the final thing uh yeah so this is uh affectionately called the canada region it's composed of four machines that i uh it's like the here's your rack bro kind of thing it's 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 all desktop hardware but uh it emulates as as faith, faithfully as i can make it uh the oxide system so you've got the four machines named after dog food there that would be uh dinner bone and fancy feast is the control control machine at the top uh and yeah i i regularly bring up and and tear down all the uh required stuff just in the in the furnace room over there i didn't actually uh, which on so the, the, uh, thing yeah <laughs> there are you know, i've never actually seen a photo of it it looks so much more professional than it was it not uh, not to take yeah, anything that, that, i'm a little disappointed are you, no, you disappointed out disappointed yeah, yeah. yeah hold on i'll Adam, post the back feel? i'll post the back it's not it's no longer professional when i post the back there's no cable management it's just everywhere yes there's some i mean i thought it was literally in his bathtub so i'm very impressed <laughs> yeah yeah i i that's was my understanding too i'm just yeah. i am very uh i mean and now i can't get the image to go there okay the back that's better better I feel. I feel. Can Alan step in the right direction on that one? We're moving there. We need a, a little. Yeah. I need to, need to see a little more, James. But yeah, this is better. Yeah, I, I, I needed, uh, you know, something like obviously Canadian, like a, you know, a, a, a flagrant foul after a, um, an empty net goal or something. I don't know. I need, I need something else in here. But this is good. This is the, This is we're moving in the right direction. Um, so, but and James, you were, um, because I also know that you were able to that that kind of approach of coming from the from the top down led you to develop some pretty important functionality pretty early on i remember like the the snapshot that when you're developing snapshots well and james also james was the first one i think to actually boot on a crucible like i i was testing it but i didn't actually have it connected to a, a vm and james was the first one to actually boot a system on crucible wow that must have been I mean, it must have been exciting. See, when was that? I mean, this is where time really blurs together. 
Yeah, I mean, it wasn't too long after he he arrived. Um, and so we, I mean, Alan, obviously a huge shot in the arm to get someone who you're, I mean, I think it's so important to be collaborating tightly with someone. I mean, I don't know, I, did you find that it was, I mean, obviously it makes you go more than twice as fast, I feel, when you've got someone who you can like, who who cares about the problems that you've just solved or the yeah. I mean, really, I mean, obviously we're all in this together, but it's really helpful to have someone who's just can work through all the same problems together. Yeah, and someone else, let me, Josh and Adam both had six other day jobs they were doing. So they were like, yeah, Alan, that looks good, whatever. And, <laughs> and when that James was right. there, it was like, somebody, we can read each other's code. We can like, there's more, you know, we're much, we were much tighter collaborators there and that. So. And then, and so when, and then that, that might, that kind of leads us into RFD 177, which is the RFD that, that you write, which we also made public. Um, and that get, begins to get us into like, what does this implementation actually look like? And some of the, the actual implementation decisions that, that we made there, um, the details, yeah. That, yeah, the details. Um, and I mean, w as you were kind of getting into the details, what were some of the kind of the big Im important details or some of the, the, the important decision points in there? Well, I mean, I don't know if there's any, anything new, the importance about keep it simple don't don't get crazy and make it work. And then, of course, for everything you're doing and every time you're doing anything, at any moment, you could lose power and you have to come back. Now, I mean, that's always with storage. You always get into those, like, the, the fast path when everything is working is kind of the easy part. It's all the damn errors. And it's all the, yeah. every, when this doesn't, this message doesn't come back and then you lose power and then you come back up, but that one's not there. And it's like, it just, explodes into complexity and so working through all those of like a lot of the stuff we didn't see until we sort of stuck our foot into it and then you're not you know and so, so how did i mean you had the challenge that we all had of trying to develop this before we had a rack so you're developing on kind of commodity hardware yeah um but then you're also trying to develop to, to test many aspects of the system that are hard to test so how did what was your approach to testing on all this well again rust uh makes it really easy to write these sort of unit tests that you can do and you can, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of basic programming where you just kind of break it down into smaller, smaller pieces and then test each little sub piece on its own and then build back, build back the more complicated system. Once you're like, okay, I, I know for sure this piece of it is, is solid and you know, and then be, and being able then to have kind of uh, robust testing also allows you to, to, to move the implementation. It's sort of like, when I need to go make a change to the implementation, you can get some confidence. Yes, yeah. That, and then that's something, again, with, with C, like you never really know. Like you hope, you pray. <laughs> you, with, with Rust, I have a lot more confidence that I, I changed it. I mean, when you get to, com when it compiles, you're like pretty close. Still got to work out the logic bugs, but like, it is amazing how I mean. I think that this is where I I do feel that Rust really separates itself from certainly everything that I've used. Where that compilation, just getting it a, a big refactor to compile, you know a lot about where you are. And I mean, so actually, kind of knowing that 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 ability to for refactoring in the future, does, does that kind of guide you in the present of like, look, I know that like I can make decisions that are revisitable are, are more readily revisitable than they may be in a C based system. Or if we need to re or to 
optimize this later or what have you. Like I, 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 need, I, I can, I can afford to like get the implementation right now and then know yeah. that if we need to like improve the abstractions from a performance perspective, we can do that later. Did that kind of guide you at all? Yeah, no, for sure. Because I, I, I knew there were things that we were doing that were slow and, and I was like, but I want to make sure it works and I want to build it, build the whole thing, build the whole stack. And then we can start iterating the different pieces. But yeah, certainly knowing that we can come back and, and update it later, gave you the freedom to just like get the basic stuff working. And then how did, I mean, you've obviously got a bunch of different failure modes that you've got to be able to, to test. You've got to be able to, I mean, disks coming and going and so on. How did you, how do you simulate that? How did you test that? I uh, let's see. For me personally, I we built some tools that that help us that will like do the sort of simulation where we all on one system we can have an upstairs and three downstairs, all in different processes running and talking to each other, and then we built like a control system that will shut down different different parts of the downstairs and let it recover and see what happens. And so it gives us a lot of a lot of control. And then we built a a sort of fake front end where you can basically sit there as the upstairs and say, okay, now issue a write to this address and then now read this address. And so you can like step your way through very specific sequences that allows us to replay things and to test a very specific, you know, okay, I'm going to take this one downstairs out, then I'm going to send a write, then I'm going to turn everybody off, then I'm going to turn them all back on and see what happens and like do all sorts of things like that. And then when you, and then you're able to do that in a way that is effectively automated, such that when when we go to improve the system, we can kind of check that as a, a, a as a regret. Did we regress this particular yeah. condition um, of what, where things are kind of transiently coming and going? Yeah, which I I mean, so important when uh, when you're endeavoring to do something like this, you really need to uh, to have and and folks in the chat are asking, well, did you use you know prop testing? Did you formal proofs? I would say. Not quite formal proofs, um, but we uh, everything else is kind of in scope, and we, we we take kind of different approaches for different parts of the system. Um, and we can definitely talk about TOI plus. Someone's asking in the chat, uh, James. Did you want to talk a bit about testing? Uh, yeah, somebody had said uh, anything beyond unit tests. We Alan talked a bit about the uh, the testing tools, which I believe have the some of the best names at Oxide. Uh, we've got CRUD, which is the Crucible DD that was written to test, you know, just basic stuff like that. We've got uh, a couple of fun names there, but uh, just to sort of back it up a bit, I think it took like five minutes of of starting to work on the storage system, and and you sort of you understand like the mission is this has to work, like it has to be bulletproof. You can't lose customer data, stuff like that. So we've taken quite a lot of effort uh, throughout the year two years, three years I've been here, uh, in order to write these, you know, extensive tests. So we've got the, the, uh, the tools that Alan was talking about. Uh, we have uh, these, this full integration test suite where we, we have uh, Tokyo tests that boot the downstairs and the upstairs and run various scenarios. Uh, we have the, uh, it, that also can boot uh, different uh, tools like our pantry service that uh, we also boot there. Uh, we have the my my favorite one of these dummy downstairs tests. Uh, I find that that can uh, tease out a lot of issues. We have a we boot a real upstairs, but we talk to fake downstairs, and we can control, for example, like this downstairs receives a message and then goes away while the other ones receive and and answer their messages. Then 
it gets kicked out, for example, it comes back, we make sure that the upstairs is either replaying or, or reconciling and repairing. Uh, you can have very, very fine-grained uh, downstairs behavior-based testing in that case. And this is all done uh, through, the, uh, through the API. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, lines of code are a terrible measure for, for this kind of thing. But I think we've got quite, quite a few, almost, I think, parity of lines of code to lines of test code. And I know that, you know, that's, that's what it is. But, uh, yeah. Because we're all measured in, you know, our progress reviews. Brian yes. gives us uh, is by lines of code we do per yeah. week. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I have found that that it creates no perverse yeah. incentives. And I really just like to stack rank the organization by lines of code per week. I found exactly. that's the, yeah. yeah, nothing else Very worse. early on, I understood that I had to game the system like this. So every PR has, you know, <laughs> 12,000 lines of testing code, you know, yeah. The most important measure of a software system is its mass. Yeah. That's exactly right. That, that's what we have written up on the wall here. Um, in, in this testing, the, the testing framework became really, really important when it became, it's like, okay, this thing works, and now, like, we let's make it faster. Um, and, um, Matt, this may be a good opportunity to get to get you in the conversation here because you've been uh, very much on the, the, the forefront of, of making it faster. Because um, we yeah. had... We and we had us. I mean, and I mean, to hugely to Crucible's credit, it's been great. It's it's done what it's needed to do in terms of like we have we have haven't you had data? We'll take vacations. We've it's it's been great, but uh, we also need to make. I mean, there is no uh, one of the challenges with I/O is like there's no performance that is going to be. A, we always want more performance, and you always want to be able to do um, the the absolute most amount of work. Um, and um, Matt, maybe you can describe some of your early work, and and uh, I think this is where also the the presence of the test suite, the kind of implementation of Rust, becomes super important when it comes to make it faster, because you can actually make some pretty radical changes and get some confidence in them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if Alan was coming in at like from the bottom up, and James was coming in from the top down, I guess that leaves me at the like middle out position. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I joined the Crucible team. Uh, I was previously doing Cubris stuff, working on embedded switch firmware. I was on a previous episode about that a while ago. Uh, but I joined Crucible and started working in earnest uh, August of last year, and was kind of, the mandate was basically like, look at things that are slow and see if you can make them faster. And so this was another situation where, like Brian said, like using Rust, having such an extensive test suite meant that we could do like relatively broad refactoring. Like one of the things that we changed uh, relatively early on was the actual on-disk format that we use for data, where this is going a little bit into the weeds, but we are using authenticated encryption. So we have to store both a blob of data, which is like 4K uh, for each block, and then an associated uh, tag and some metadata for the encryption. And you can't mess that up. If you write the block but don't have the metadata, then you're not going to be able to decrypt it. And so you, the implementation that we had previously was actually using SQLite to store the metadata because that's something that is very good at not losing your data. And it would actually store like multiple rows of metadata. And then when it loaded, it would pick whichever row corresponded to the block on disk and use that. And so one of the things we worked out is that we didn't actually quite need that level of overkill. We could actually store the metadata within the same files. And we started leaning on like some ZFS behavior where if you're writing to the same file descriptor, then you have certain guarantees about ordering and what's persistent on disk based on when you send flushes. So changing from ZFS or changing from SQLite to just using raw files was like a 30-ish percent speed up for a bunch of small writes. And so that's the kind of example of like 
there's a lot of we're pretty far from the like raw speed of disk io and we've been slowly bringing it closer and closer through both like micro things like that and like bigger architecture changes and kind of refactoring large chunks of the system to do async more efficiently i do remember when we chucked sqlite back out though like i feel like it has to get some kind of special mention for being really quite a lot faster than even i expected i think that it was going to go like oh, it, they, last, it lasted quite like a while. Yeah, yeah. Like it was pretty impressively quick. And we didn't have considered. it originally, and then we put it in, and then right because we didn't have we didn't have we had naively in 2020 not really thought that hard about encryption and what it meant, uh, and the the property of like the uh, like unauthenticated encryption can be uh, size preserving. So if you're going to have, write a 4K block and then or an encrypted version of that block, it's still 4K at the end. But yeah. the authenticated encryption stuff, which unfortunately like, is unfortunately necessary, like when you look at all the attack <laughs> models, it's like kind of difficult to argue that it's not necessary. And it just like it adds some number of additional, not very power of two shaped uh, data alongside the 4K sector. Yep. It'd be like. 4.1k, which doesn't fit very good into anything. Yeah, it's uh, and, 48 bytes yeah. of metadata. Right, which is like, you think, oh, well, that's not much. It's like, well, it's not, but also it's not a multiple of anything. And it has to go, and you have to like atomically update that 48 uh, bytes alongside the, the block data, which is nicely shaped on purpose. So that definitely made it a lot more complicated, and that's why we ended up with SQLite, whereas in the original model we didn't have any of that metadata stuff hanging off the side. We just had like a flat file, basically. But yeah, encryption makes things challenging. The funny thing about SQLite is that we actually tested two versions. In one version we got rid of SQLite and put everything into these raw files, and in the other test we got rid of the raw files and actually put the block data into SQLite. And both of those were actually faster. uh, But we decided to ditch SQLite for for the sake of simplicity. But it was still pretty impressive. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it, I mean, it was actually, I mean, SQLite is just kind of what it says on the tent. It's very robust, and it was actually pretty easy to understand what was going on, um, relatively right. easy to, to, to instrument the system to understand what was going on. Um, and, uh, and uh, Matt, you were kind of, um, just in terms of some of the bigger refactorings, um, I mean, and we've made available uh, RFD 444 and 445 go into some of the things that, we've, that, that you've worked on there. Um, what were some of the the ways in which we were able to kind of refactor it to uh, in the name of performance? So RFD 444 is a deep dive into the upstairs architecture and kind of a, a big refactoring, probably too big, uh, that switched a lot of the data ownership around, where when the software was growing, it was using Tokyo tasks to do a bunch of different operations in parallel. But those tasks were all mostly operating on the same chunk of data. Like we had one big lock where each task would lock it and do some work and then unlock it, uh, which meant that you weren't actually running the tasks in parallel. Like you weren't actually getting much parallelism out. And there were also concerns of like, well, are you sure that you maintained your invariance correctly? And are you sure that the locks live long enough that no one else can interrupt you and stuff like that? So RFD 444 describes a relatively major refactoring where we took the system of like, six or seven interlocking tasks and basically refactored into one big task that owned all the data and then a handful of smaller tasks who were just doing serialization, deserialization, and encryption at the edges. Uh, and that was 
ended up being a decent speed up uh, because we could kind of figure out where is the heavy work, which was again, encryption, serialization, deserialization, and then move that out to the side. And the simple, you know, quote unquote, simple logic of just shuffling what jobs are ready to run and kind of throwing them over the fence to the different downstairs, that could all be done in one place, which owned all of its data. Um, so that ended up being another nice speed up. And, uh, you know, Alan, you were talking earlier about not being able to imagine doing it in C. This refactor is the one where I'm like, I cannot imagine. Yeah. This is because this is the kind of thing where I don't care how veteran you are with C. Like, we're now going to really kind of change the way things are paralyzed and, and or not. And just like, it would be very hard to get confidence in. Um, and I think this was a huge, I mean, the, the fact that we could do this kind of refactoring at all, let alone get like pretty quick confidence in it. Um, Another good example of that is actually like a smaller thing, which I've, I've mentioned this to everyone at work, but I recently went through and just removed four mutexes from the crucible downstairs because they were not actually protecting anything. And that's the kind of thing where if I was doing this or C or C++, I would be terrified to make that kind of change because like you never <laughs> well, know how, someone how would stashed you stashed yeah. a copy of your data. Uh, how would yes, you but, know? Yeah, but because we're using Rust, like I tried compiling it, I had to add a couple of more, um, I had to make a couple more ref, ref, uh, things mutable instead of immutable. And there was one thing which actually the compiler was like, hey, you're secretly sharing this between threads. So I had to re-add one mutex, but I still got rid of the other four. But then once it compiled, it was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is safe. In the original sketch of the whole thing, which was not more than a couple of thousand lines, really, like I had absolutely punched on any hint of performance, uh, like in the job tracking stuff, like the, because my expectation was that we'd be able to fix it later, basically. Like I, my, I had really focused on the correctness, which... I had achieved through a lot of things that did a lot of loops, scanning over everything. And rather than like having a list of tasks that are in this state and a list of tasks that are in that state, we just put them all in one big list and we had a state variable on the task. And I feel like one of the first performance things, maybe Brian, you worked on was like refactoring some of that stuff so that we weren't doing as many scans of memory to like once we'd figured out what shape the data structures actually needed to be in to track these things and what, what properties we needed to enforce as invariants across the whole thing. Like I feel like it's been, there's just been a lot of constant refactoring as we've unpicked experiments and turned them from like a correct proof of concept into a correct and fast operable system. Yes, which is by the way, that's the same path that ZFS itself took, right? ZFS itself. Right. But I mean, if you, the, the, I mean, Adam, when you describe us shipping that in 2008 and that kind of being, even though ZFS had been in customer stance 2005, the, the difference between what we did from 2008 to 2009, 2010 was really all ultimately around performance. Now it's not performance in kind of the way you might think of just like IOPS because performance is a lot more than just IOPS. Performance is how do you behave when things begin to, to behave pathologically and um, I feel like, you know, Josh, what you're describing where you have things that, that scale with the data size, in particular, like snapshot deletion was, a, I mean, the one that definitely has some scar tissue <laughs> where ZFS would do these, where a small snapshot delete would be fine, but a large snapshot deletion would be on the order of, the, you, you end up in, when you're trying to sync a transaction, you're doing random reads, which is always the kiss of death um and you know matt aaron's some terrific work to to get that out uh, and be able to do large snapshot deletion 
Um, and I would also think that like one of the challenges too is that, uh, and this is I frankly one of the advantages that Crucible has over CFS is the ability to do these kind of refactors because some of these refactors were were really impossible in CFS. I mean, there's some th- refactors that I think would just be really scary to do in CFS because of the way state is spread through the system. Um, and I mean, we like we had dedupe for example. CFS supports deduplication, but the way it was done was definitely not very many lines of code, but really problematic from a performance perspective and not really possible to write the ship on that one. Um, that one's just what it's going to be. I wrote, I wrote the dialog box, though, that you have to click when you want to enable it. And, uh, be real explicit about that. Yeah. Um, one of the other funny things that we ran into with these cleanups is we had a lot of sources of what we started calling accidental back pressure, like things that scaled with the number of jobs in a queue or scaled right. with the size of writes. And as we started taking these down, we suddenly ran into issues like, oh, look, the upstairs is going to buffer 400 gigabytes of writes because there's nothing <laughs> slowing it down anymore and the downstairs cannot keep up. So the, the, let's talk a little bit about back pressure because back pressure is, is very, very important. And I mean, you, I mean, if you do not develop deliberate back pressure into your distributed system, God will develop it for you. And you do not, you <laughs> it do doesn't not it doesn't even need to be distributed, right? Like I mean it's true. A lot right. of these a lot of these surprise explosion bucket things were like like between queues were were just inside the process. It, God's own back pressure is not pretty. You do not want that one. You want that you want the designed one. Um well it's, it's a, worth saying, I mean yeah. in particular, God's own back pressure becomes very inconsistent and in, unpredictable. Yes. So there, there, there's always going to be back pressure somewhere, but it's sort of what it looks like. And God's own back pressure actually manifests itself as a data vacation. It's like we are, this system is no longer available and will be available when, when it is chosen to become available again. And that's not what we want. We want to have a, not to, not to play too much divine intervention in storage systems, but it sometimes feels that way. Um, Although I actually did learn, you know, Don McCaskill was an early customer of ours, Adam, at, at yeah. Sun. And every time I think of Don McCaskill, all I think about is waiting for his data to come back on a Zeeple import that was taking like 45 minutes. <laughs> and he doesn't even remember that happening. God bless him. So, you know, sometimes yeah. he doesn't remember the vacations, but uh, it was very painful. Um, so, you, you, Matt, how did you kind of think about back pressure in the in system? In terms of designing it explicitly. Yeah, so the, it's interesting because things like reads and flushes, we had to wait for the downstairs to come back, right? For reads, you needed at least one copy of the data to come back. For flushes, I think we needed two out of three to come back. But for writes, we had an optimization where as soon as the upstairs submits a write, we immediately tell it, you're good, because writes don't need to be persistent until the following flush actually comes along. Uh, and so this is interesting because it's analogous to uh, actually an old blog post from Adam, uh, one Adam Leventhal about the ZFS write throttle, <laughs> which is solving basically the same problem of like, we can cache a certain amount of data in RAM, but we can't cache infinite data in RAM, right? So we have to start slowing down at some point. So the, the design, I can't remember whether I, I came up with it before or after reading that blog post, but it ended up being very similar where we track a handful of things. Like we track the number of jobs that are in flight and the number of bytes that are in flight. And we have a, like a quadratic equation with a bunch of Tudin parameters that I made up at random, and that will artificially delay writes. So the system end up, ends up in a kind of steady state where the delay added by the back pressure converges to the same amount of time it actually takes for a write to go through the whole system. 
And that is like pretty good. There's still some tuning that we need to do that RFD 445 talks about a little bit. Um, but this fixed the like most pathological case of the upstairs will buffer infinitely many, infinitely much right data because it's so much faster than the downstairs. I'm pretty sure the the infinite buffering was due to was due to me, just due to me. Oh, and I think is that is that a fair? Uh, you may have suggested. <laughs> you were the, you. I remember you ca- you came to seek an indulgence <laughs> about this, right? You're like, couldn't we just come to seek an indulgence about this? Because That's we exactly. used to, you know, foolishly wait for. <laughs> Wait for two of the rights to be acknowledged on the platter, basically, before we would oh, yes. before we would tell the guest. And it's like we don't actually need to do that. That's true. It did go right. quite a lot faster when we stopped waiting for that. Oh yeah, fast enough, fast enough to fast enough to explode. In fact, as it turns out, like you know. and, and so just to give folks a, a little bit more of additional context. So the we are we are presenting a virtual block device up to a guest and. We are telling the virtual block device that, hey, by the way, we have a write cache. There's a write cache that's enabled on this. A um, uh, a non non volatile, a non volatile write cache, or a volatile one. The volatile one. So the, the, the volatile they, one. Yeah. So it, right. if you have if you've not done if you've not done a flush, you cannot assume that that your that your data has been persisted. So. The, right. But we were on rights. We were waiting until those rights had been acknowledged by two different machines because it's like, well, I mean, like, what are we nuts? Like, of course, we want to make sure that two different machines at least have seen this thing and have, have synced this out. And I'm like, well, hey, we can make the system go a lot faster if we just, like, we just can act it immediately. Of course, that well, that's yes. what the disk is doing. That's what your argument was. Like, that's the disk is doing that to us already. Why don't we just pass that on to the? You know? And what can go wrong? I'm sure I said many times. Um, but yes, I'm seeking an indulgence. It turns out that created, sorry, created a lot rather uh, explosive amount of now we've, we, we have now can explode the upstairs with buffered data, which is like, that's okay. So we've got to actually, and it, it's always kind of paradoxical to me when you actually need to make, in order to make the system go faster, you need to throttle the work. Um, you know, but this is like, you know, these are the metering lights in traffic, right? I mean, it's like in order to be able to, to make the aggregate system go faster. It's like, yes, you need to stop your car right now. It's like the fat, the way to make to get you to work quickly is to be, to have you be stopped right now, which can be very counterintuitive, but. And the, I mean, the back, we knew we would need to do the back pressure work at some point. Anyway, there were lots of like, come back and do this better next time comments. Oh, well, and, and I think importantly, I mean, cause you, you were constantly picking and choosing about like, what is the stuff that has to be exactly right out of the gate? Versus what are some implementation implement implementation mm-hmm. artifacts we can improve? And I mean, we had to get the reliability obviously had to be correct, Alan. Yep. What were some of the other things? Because we we encryption was an important constraint. Yeah. Um making sure I think Josh talked about this earlier, that the order of things happens on all three of the da- all of the downstairs in the same way. So whenever the IO is land, they all gotta land in the same way. That's another piece that's sort of fundamental to the whole the whole thing working when you come back up after power loss. Um, and then the, so, and those are the things that, that absolutely, and then there's a bunch of functionality that you also like absolutely need. Like snapshots are not really, I mean, they're, are rather important for us. Yeah. Um, James, you talk about the development of that in particular, because as I recall, you know, in software, most things take longer than you think to do. And every once in a while you have something that is actually faster than you thought it would be. I feel like, the, Matt, this giant refactoring that you 
uh, I, I feel like that's an example, even though as big as that was, the fact that that was possible at all, let alone the speed at which you're able to do that and get that integrated, I think it was actually faster than one would expect. Um, and James, it felt like that way for some of the snapshot work you did as well. Am I recalling that correctly? There was some, I just recall you wake like when James did the volume layer, I think that opened up a whole bunch of doors and solved a bunch of problems that we were like, I don't know. We'll get to that later. Hopefully. So James, you want to elaborate a little bit on that, on, on the volume layer? Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I had to look this up. I'm not great with dates. So early 2022, we had a storage huddle where we talked about kind of what, what Alan had said. So like, Hey, there's all these things that customers are going to expect from our cloud. Uh, we should probably, uh, start thinking about that. Uh, so that was Monday. Right. And, uh, so I, we came out of that, we start, start thinking about it. Uh, at that point, uh, we had Propolis with its NVMe device emulation that would underneath that talk to what we called the guest. Now this would be the object that communicates with the upstairs through uh, channels. So when, the, when there's an NVMe read that comes in, this gets turned into a crucible read, sent over this channel to the upstairs, the upstairs you know, sends a tell through downstairs, you know, so on and so forth, does its stuff. Uh, this read comes back. It then gets written into the uh, uh, guest memory, and then the NVMe doorbell gets rung, stuff like that. But the structure of it was uh, this guest object, and that was implementing all the things you would expect, read, write, and flush. Um, we had, uh, so we had Propolis. So started, I started thinking about uh, what that product had to support based on what was in that meeting. So booting from a image of some sort, you would, you know, everybody shares the same Ubuntu server image, for example, and you would have to spin up a VM from that. Uh, snapshots, taking that from the disk, uh, and then booting from those snapshots, stuff like that. Uh, but then some of the more uh, like elastic properties, I expect, like uh, growing a disk, for example, at runtime, um, stuff like that. Uh, so we take booting from Take booting from a, uh, an image as an example. Say a user wants to boot a VM. Uh, they create a 32 gig disk uh, backed by an image. Let's take that Ubuntu server image. They click start VM. Uh, we didn't want to have customers wait you know, for us to copy all the blocks from an image into this freshly allocated 32 gig uh, blank region and then boot the VM. Uh, you know, That would be not a great experience. Uh, so out of that, you you think, well, now blocks have to optionally come from different sources, and this was, you know, never in the, never in the design of the northern, you know, the southern mux. It was never in the right. design of yeah. the upstairs and the downstairs. Um, these this optional location. Um, so breaking it down for, you know, an image based, you're booting off of an image. Uh, the images blocks, the image blocks have to come from somewhere immutable, right? You don't want the the guest to be able to alter those, uh, but any write should go to this freshly allocated. 32 gig region and then yeah, then you have to make sure that uh, subsequent reads of, of those written blocks would come from there um, I, I think at that point uh, yeah at that point we could tell if a block had been written to based on the existence of this block context so if you've got the either the encryption context or the integrity hash that we store alongside uh, the encrypted block data you know that a write had occurred uh, so we could use that at least to, to say, uh, you know, the allocated freshly 32, you know, 32 gig region had a write there, serve that, else serve the image block. Um, 
Uh, but then you have to think about layering, right? So you could teach an upstairs to pick from two sources optionally, right? Like depending on you know which which rights shadow each other or not. Uh, but say a user has a disk, and then they say, "Okay, I'm going to take a snapshot of that disk, and then I'm going to boot a disk." based on that snapshot. And then I'm going to know, take a snapshot, blah, blah, blah. You say they do this 100 times. Now your blocks have to come from an arbitrary number of places. Um, I didn't want to, you know, muck with the upstairs that much, right? It's doing a lot of complicated things, uh, wrangling the the three downstairs. Uh, And I didn't want to have an arbitrarily large list of these block sources, right? You only want to deal with the three mirrors. We know uh, up until that point, all the code that we had written uh, was doing that assumption of three mirrors. That was something we were comfortable with. Um, uh, And importantly, from Propolis's perspective, uh, whatever we came up with, it still had to just have that interface of read, write, flush. Uh, Propolis shouldn't have to do any special work here. They just, you know, talk to the the block dev layer, uh, as it were. Uh, so in thinking about this uh, in this layering problem, uh, and at the same time thinking about how uh, Propolis shouldn't have to care, uh, I came up with the idea for the this. At the same time, you come up with the idea for the volume hierarchy. You come up with the uh, block I/O trait. So I took what the guest uh, was already doing and turned that into a trait that that we called the block I/O trait. So read in, in, in a trait in the Rust sense, just to be clear. In the Rust sense, yeah. I was very much inspired by uh, by how awesome Rust is, yeah, uh, which was also referenced in the demo. Uh, which we'll get to that in a sec. Um, uh, the yeah, so read, write, and flush, you get block size, you know, stuff like that. Uh, Guest already implemented all of this. Uh, so then this uh, volume implementation, so the volume object came about. Uh, so this is a struct that itself implements block I/O. Uh, it has an optional read-only parent, and then a list of what are called sub-volumes, which, have, which themselves implement block I.O., but also store LBA-related information, so logical block address, so a range of some sort. And uh, from this, you have that, that sort of model where writes go to the sub-volumes, and reads can come from either the sub-volumes or the read-only parent, uh, depending on if a block was written to or not. Um, and then you you have this immutability by saying that writes only ever go to the subvolume. And volume the volume layer takes care of all the, you know, you have to split a read and send, you know, certain block reads go here, certain block reads go there, uh, the splitting the writes also accordingly. Uh, flushes go everywhere uh, because, you know, you have to flush everything. Um, uh, so so after that, uh, you think, how, how do we solve this layering problem? Well, the volume object implements block I.O., so it can itself be a read-only parent, and then that gives us that that layering right away. Uh, so in the case of a, uh, take a snapshot, for example, you have a read-only parent, which is a image source of some sort, and then the freshly allocated 32 gig region. To take a snapshot is to first of all, perform a ZFS snapshot on that 32 gig region. This gives you places where you can boot read-only downstairs out of the .zfs slash snapshot directory. Uh, and you know, based on ZFS's guarantee, that this data will, will never change. So this is actually an important point, James. And I just, because, yeah. you know, we didn't really belabor it, Adam, when we were talking earlier, but 
someone might reasonably be like, wait a minute, you're going to have a Z pool that consists of a single SSD. You're going to have all these, <laughs> you know, 10 NVMe SSDs. Like, why are you putting a Z pool on them? Like just use the device directly. And there, I mean, there was a bunch of, there were a bunch of reasons for it, but we wanted to be able to leverage a bunch of the semantics that ZFS was offering, even though we weren't using erasure encoding or mirroring. Yeah, um, we wanted the copy on write snapshotting stuff. Like you want the copy on write snapshotting stuff, and you want to make certain things like really yeah. a lot easier. You don't have to invent or, or contort your data format into something that does its own native copy on write stuff. Like you can just write the files and take a snapshot at the time that you need it, and, and then access it as a read only thing off to the side. It's pretty good. Right. So really, it's so sorry, James, just just to briefly interject in terms of like why that because yeah. when you're developing the snapshot mechanism, you're, you're able to leverage, you're able to at least solve some fraction of the problem um, by using ZFS snapshots. We, yeah, we ended up relying on a few of those ZFS based things for uh, at least the sort of the raw extent work uh, and uh, some of the guarantees that we get about uh, the downstairs will only ever return, for example, okay, if if uh, you know all the checksums from ZFS say that they're okay, for, you know, for example, um, stuff like that. Yeah, we we end up relying on it. Uh, copy and write and the transaction group stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Sorry. Yeah. So all the yeah all the problems that um, I think I was there. All the problems that we had talked about in that storage huddle. Uh, growing a disk. Well, that's just uh, that's just adding to the subvolume, like the 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 vec of subvolumes. Uh, you can even talk about uh, re-encryption. So you you make the existing volume a read-only parent, and then you boot a equivalently sized uh, region with a different encryption key. Uh, importantly, you need this operation called a scrub uh, that is done uh, by Propolis, where blocks are read from the read-only parent and written to the subvolume, uh, but only if they had never been written before. So this is not going to overwrite uh, what the guest, whatever guest activity had occurred. Uh, once that, once something like that is done, you can drop the read-only parent uh, and then issue all of your reads and writes directly to the subvolumes. Um, you could even do a, a crucible upgrade, right? Like a upstairs V2 or, or something like that, because this is all hidden behind that that trait. Uh, it, it ends up being a, a hammer where everything that that we wanted to uh, to solve would be the nail, I guess, in this case. Uh, so Brian, you're not wrong. It did come together very, very quickly. It was Monday was was sort of the genesis of it, and then Friday was the demo. Uh, I remember uh, uh, talking to you know Alan for feedback during the week, but there was a particular meeting on uh, Thursday where it's like, oh yeah, this came together, but is this good? Like, what do you think? I had it with uh, Josh and and Alan. It was like, hey, what do you think? Did I miss something? Did you know? Did did I overlook something that'll bite us later? Kind of thing. Um, I was pretty excited. I wanted to sort of demo it and uh, and sort of start building on top of it uh, because it enabled us to uh, to move in that direction pretty quickly. I think the the uh, the stuff that you put together with that abstraction really uh, was it like a good like concrete rendition of a bunch of hand waving that we'd been doing for probably two years at that point because we we had talked a lot about. Uh, the Fishworks appliance had had a feature called shadow migration, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In which, in which, like, you would say, "All right, you've got this f- existing file server with you know 100 gigabytes of crap in it, or whatever, or a terabyte or something. It's going to take a while to copy that over to 
this new shiny file server. So instead of just everybody has to unmount everything and go away for eight hours or something, we would you would just mount the new thing directly, and the new thing would be smart enough to fish old files out on demand from the back end and and make and copy them into the front end before serving them up. And then it's almost a little bit like hierarchical storage management. Uh, like, I think we had talked at some length about how that was going to be the thing that we were going to do for all kinds of things we didn't want to solve at the time. Like, yeah. uh, rekeying, migrating right. data format to data format, upgrading software, stuff like that. Um, and then when James put this thing together, it, it was immediately apparent that it was going to be useful for... All sorts uh, of stuff. All sorts of stuff. And then, like, pretty concretely demonstratable in a very short order. It was, it was, uh, it was a big win for us. I mean, th- there have been a couple of demos that have blown me away over the history of the company, but that is definitely, that is among them, where it's just like, James, it just felt like that demo was like, but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. That was the NF- he had NFTs involved in that demo, I believe. <laughs> is that the one? The, uh, I definitely remember, well, the, the, I, I learned that, like, part of the, problem is that there is uh there's an inner performance artist apparently in every oxide engineer and uh james your demo with greg that you alluded to earlier when the two of you were playing minecraft using the oxide uh rack i learned that i could never trust again because you two were <laughs> there was so so much was part of the bit and like whenever matt's giving a demo like you'll then reveal at the end that like you're actually all in my demo right now which i feel happened at least once matt uh, well, that, that was the time that I was demoing the network switch and actually running my demo internet through it. But the problem with this is that now whenever anything goes wrong during a demo, everyone is like, is this a bit? Is this a bit? I think this is a bit. Right. Uh, and it, it, it often is, I feel. I feel like I, it was, James, it was, that, that demo was amazing. It's just how much came together, how quickly. And I mean, it's, you know, I always tell people like when whenever that happens, man, just make sure you bottle it up so you can spray it on yourself later when something seemingly simple is taking you like this is taking me much longer than I thought it would take, which feels like it's much more common in software. But that that must have been James. That must have been a great feeling to have that come together so quickly. That that was a fun demo. Uh, yeah, I I so I actually I had remembered something, and I don't know if any of you also remember this. So I looked at that demo again because. Uh, at one point, I had a slide with with the sort of the volume struct, and it was like, here it is, you know, it's just a couple of fields, blah blah blah. Uh, but I, I didn't mention this during the time, but it didn't say, you know, like read only parent colon arc guest, right? It said dine block IO. Uh, I didn't mention it at the time, but later on, as a slide, I I referenced back to it after the first part of the demo, uh, and I said, you know, eagle eyed readers would have noticed that it didn't say guest; it said uh, block IO, and Matt in in the chat said actually yes I I did notice this um, which uh, which is kind of fun he, was, he before the the days where he had joined the team and and sort of done the work he was already saying like ah this is yeah anyway eagle eyed in the in the demo uh, yeah. early in eagle eyed well that was I said it was that was great to great to see and I also felt like it was one of those and I think there've been again a couple of these where whenever you're doing something hard and long you're kind of looking for good omens of like, okay, we got like, we're, we're, we're like, we're seeing a seabird. We're headed towards land. You know, we're not going to be out here forever. Uh, and I, I don't know, James, I felt like that was one of those good omens. It's like, okay, we've got, we're, we're, we've got some things that are actually 
going in the right direction here. We've got some things that are structured the right way when you can make a change like this and have some stuff come together. I mean, Alan, it must have felt that way to you. Yeah, well, it was like this. Maybe this thing really is going to work. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Might actually pull this off. Uh, yeah, that was that was great. Um, and we've been able to build a lot of functionality on that. I mean, that is that, that it feels like that has been a James that has stayed a, a good abstraction and really important because, as you say, like when you're spinning up guests, it's like snapshots, writable snapshots become actually not some esoteric feature that's nice to have, but like actually required for any real use of the rack. Yeah, it's one of the yeah one of the thing killer features I would say like of. of cloud-based infrastructure like snapshot uh, you know we don't have it yet but like snapshot restore for example uh exporting importing stuff like that like these, these sort of virtual storage things that you would expect um yet because we're using zfs snapshots for example we can do this very very quickly uh and and sort of build on top of that by booting another disk and and uh you know our control plane takes care of all the reference counting and uh cleaning up the objects when when done uh if there's no longer you know dangling you know volume layer that points to it uh, it it's been it's been pretty good yeah so it, it, alan what would have been some of the the surprises along the way in terms of the um i mean are are there things that have been surprisingly hard surprisingly easy i mean i i think you always um with with storage it's always at the margins and in terms of like the degree that misbehavior deep in the stack can cause um kind of outsized effects up the stack but what, what have been some of the things that stick out to you hey i know i know that i had a lot of trouble with the live repair figuring out how that was going to fit in it into the whole big picture that took me a while to sort of get that sorted um it's describe the constraints a bit on live repair that's when you're you're taking io from the the guest from a vm but one of your downstairs has failed and you have to you have to fix it you have to make it consistent with the other two but you you can't just take a long vacation you have to do this while new ios are streaming in i mean it's not a not a new problem. Anyone who's done raid resilvering has figured it out. But it just in the scope of our distributed, it, at any moment anything can disappear. Everything can disappear, and then the power can go out, and all that. That was certainly a, a, a challenging piece of work. And and that was I mean that was something that came together like relative. I mean that was that came together in come together. I think it was like the early. 23 early last year. Am I, am I remembering that correctly? Maybe it was late 2022. Yeah, I think it was early 2023. Uh, but one of those things that was required to ship. That yeah. We, um, and I mean, so much was required. We had to run the table on, on so many things because this is the kind of thing, I mean, we say this about like all sorts of aspects of the system, but if this doesn't work, you don't have a product. Yeah. Like, like y- you need this startup to actually, this startup within the startup has to actually nail it. Like every other startup within the startup. Oh, I mean, I don't know. I think pretty much everybody is working on some piece that is completely, totally required. But it's not like anybody else wasn't working on something that was also critical. But yeah, this was another <laughs> of the 55 pieces that had to absolutely work. This right. was one of them. I was like, as I told people to shift the rack, like if you, if you have the feeling like, boy, what were they going to do without me? Uh, they would have been screwed. It's like, yes, we would have been screwed. And we definitely would have been screwed. 
um, without uh, without all of you, without and and all of the, the the hard work that went into all aspects of this. Um, and it's been I actually describe also um, when did we open up Crucible? When did that happen? Because uh, this is all open source, it should be said. Yeah. So folks can go to kind of check out the repo and I, it might. I may be misremembering, but I think this is one of those ones that we open sourced out of convenience. Like um, it was, I, I don't know, sort if of a pain can, in the neck. Well, can you, can you, it, it might have been a pain in the neck. We open sourced Propolis because uh, Patrick was interviewing a candidate and wanted to be able to talk about it. It's like, I want to be able to talk about Propolis in 45 minutes. So can we open it? I'm like, I, uh, I sure. We open sourced Crucible because we use it as a dependency in Propolis. And That's it's right. It's easier to use a Git dependency. That's right. It was it was purely the convenience of Git dependencies. Yeah, seventy five percent of it at least. Yeah, it is a real pain in the butt to have things that are like some things are public and some things that are private. So yeah, I think we that is, that is uh, plenty of the things we've opened have been because of that. Um, yeah. It, and so we, we so we got that out there I guess a while ago, but um, folks can go check that out as well. Um, I'm, I'm not uh, not sure how uh, readily deployable it will be. There are like plenty of, of dependent, but honestly, it's a, it's a pretty well-contained unit too. So it does actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I develop on a Mac and I run it locally on my Mac just for itself and it, you know, it compiles there. Um, and I know like Artemis and I have been doing a bunch. I, I mean, we were both going in to do um, some of that early performance work and kind of going into a foreign source space. And it was it was good to be able to, uh, I mean, it, it, the source space itself was very approachable, I got to say. Very, it, it did not feel, you know, complicated systems can be very complicated. But, um, you know, it, it was always pretty clean to figure out what was going on here. And, and I think clean before and after the big, the, the great refactor. Um, uh, which is um, made it easy to add to kind of add people to the source base as well. Right. Um, so what's the future? I mean, we got, I think it's done, right? Ron on, on other things. I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, you're the, you're the boss. So <laughs> I, I, I noticed you like practically muted yourself. I was saying it. You couldn't put yourself. I, I actually fell forward. Did you, did you fall forward <laughs> laughing? Did you, did you, you met you replied when you said that, Josh. Try to contain it. myself and apologize. <laughs> right. Well, uh, I mean, we still, I mean, there is, uh, and James, I know you alluded to some of the future work, but there is, there is always so much to be done. I mean, I think we've got, we, we, we have what we needed certainly to ship and we've got, we, thanks to Matt, your work, we've got, uh, and everyone's really, we've got a, a the system that is kind of performing better every day. Um, and it's been fun to deliver upgrades to customers and just like, hey, you're, Short performance is just getting better. Yeah. Um, is is pretty exhilarating. Um, and you still get your data. <laughs> yeah, dude, yeah um, what a bonus! Your data is still here. Um, so I think it's been really. I broadly, I feel it's been really successful. We've been able to do exactly what we wanted to go do. Um, and I think we got a great foundation to go to go build upon because we're gonna have we're gonna be building upon this foundation in Crucible or ever effectively. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, this, this is going to be the way, you know, when, when VMs are deployed, like this is where the root file system is going to come from and it's got to be exactly correct. And I think done really terrific job on it. It's been fun. No, I'd say it's, I, I think storage is one of these things like there will be no end, right? There's always, not just on the current iteration, but like there's, you know, every new customer requirement, every new workload, it's like some whole new 
sub branch of either how we're thinking about the current system or plans for the next system. So, um, I mean, James, Alan, Matt, this is not to say you're lashed to the mast forever, but just as long as you want to be. <laughs> um, we got plenty of work to do. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, Alan, any, uh, any, any closing thoughts on James, Matt? It's been a great, it's been a great whole team to work with and, and the company, you know, having a blast. Yeah. I could not have picked a better, you know, multi many thousand line of code base to be plunged into on short notice. It was great. You asked, I, you all sound like you're speaking under duress. You know, I think like <laughs> Josh, do you have anything you'd like to say now that you've heard that? I'm James? actually blinking exactly. a, a prime James, number of times please, now to, to communicate. Could you please my... read your prepared statement that I've asked you to give? Yeah. And this team uh, is the. No. Exactly. And fun. Has been fun, getting better every day. Um, and I definitely welcome folks to check out the RFDs, learn more about what. Oh, I will. I, yeah. I will say that it, it uh, I think. Like, if you think about Crucible as a narrative arc, like, really, one of the most important things we did was hiring. Yes. Which I think is, like, always the most important thing we did. But, like, but like it really, I think, needs to be emphasized that, like, you know, when, when Alan came on and then James, like, we, as Alan noted, were doing six other things and it was really not the focus and was not going to happen without some people for whom it was more a dedicated focus and... and we did extremely well picking. Uh, we were very fortunate to have Alan and James lash themselves to the mast. <laughs> well, was, I, uh, I think it, it, a testament to that, and I also do think, and you kind of have heard it, kind of heard us weave it in here, but it's been a big testament to Russ too, because I think it's been the, the fact that we've been able, I mean, to have Matt join the code base, you know, relatively late in its life after we after we had deployed it to our first customers and be able to like really uh, do some. He's a pretty serious rototeller. Some, <laughs> some of our early shenanigans, he was able to come in and clean up a lot. It's like an adult showed up and like, put everything in order. And like, one thing, but also where you can, you know, have someone come in with, with, you know, a coming from a kind of a different, uh, different code base and be able to bring like a bunch of great, I mean, we, our ability to, to, to leverage Rust across many different systems, across Propolis, across Omicron, across Crucible. I mean, has been, I think, really across hubris for that matter. And we all talk to each other and we're all like, oh, wait a minute, I'm doing this and this is this is working really good or it's not working really good. And then everyone else is like, oh, I'm going to do that or I'm not going to do that or like that. I could share it all around. So it's been it, it's been a really important element, I think, of, of principal success. It's great work, everyone. It's been fun. Um, and, and thanks folks for, for prodding us to do this episode with this has been, this has been, uh, way too long in coming. Um, so, um, thank you very much for, for encouraging us. We got, we're going to have a, a lot more of these. I think we'll probably have, I have to do some crucible follow-ons at some point as well, but, um, Alan, James, Matt, Josh, of course, and Adam, I, I guess, Adam, I do have to thank you for joining us. I mean, you kind of didn't, nah, I would have been here anyway. Yeah. Thanks. So. All right. Thanks, everyone. I will talk to you next time.